Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So on today's show, brought to you in part by Azi and Morphotech, We'll be talking about just that, colorectal cancer. So according to the statistics uh, recently released by the American Cancer Society, an estimated 103,170 cases of colon cancer and 40,290 cases of rectal cancer are expected to occur in 2012. Just some startling numbers. Uh, In addition, an estimated 51,690 deaths from colorectal cancer are expected to occur, accounting for 9% of all cancer deaths. These are big numbers, folks. Um, colorectal cancer affects many Americans, but thankfully these numbers actually represent a decrease in the number of deaths caused by colorectal cancer and declining incidence rates. We think this can be attributed in large part to an increase in the use of colorectal cancer screening tests we're going to talk about today uh, to allow the detection and removal of polyps before they progress to cancer, and um, we have, so we have some also improvements uh, in treatment. So we're going to talk about all of that today. We're delighted to have some very knowledgeable guests with us who will discuss their experience dealing with and addressing colorectal cancer, how to optimize communications with your healthcare team, and uh, we also will be stressing throughout the show the importance of, of, of screening and early detection. First, we have with us today Vanessa Kurtzer. Vanessa is a wife and mother of two. When her husband was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, she served as her husband's caregiver. Thankfully, her husband is now through treatment and doing well. Vanessa currently works as a volunteer for the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Companion Program. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. We are also thrilled to be joined by Jean Angelette. Jean is a stage 4 colorectal cancer survivor for over six years. She's represented the Colon Cancer Alliance in a number of ways, including manning the booth, or I guess I should just say womaning the booth Mm -hmm. uh, at health fairs to encourage colonoscopies for early detection, volunteering as a chat room moderator, and reviewing web pages for survivors. Glad you're here with us, Jean. Thanks. Happy to be here. 
Also joining us from Fight Colorectal Cancer is their president uh, and a good friend of ours, uh, Carly Bowman. Fight Colorectal Cancer is the leading colorectal cancer advocacy organization in Washington, D.C., empowering survivors to raise their voices. They train advocates around the country. They're educating lawmakers and pushing for better policies for those with colorectal cancer. Carly's passion for health advocacy is personal. She lost her mother to diabetes and her father to cancer. Welcome, Carly. Thank you. We will also be joined uh, by Dr. Janice Frederick Rafferty. She is Professor of Clinical Surgery and Chief of the Division of Colon and Rectal Surgery at the University of Cincinnati's College of Medicine. Dr. Rafferty specializes in cancer of the colon and rectum, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and proctology. A recipient of many honors and awards, Dr. Rafferty has given numerous presentations, authored many publications in peer-reviewed journals, in addition to being a reviewer for diseases of the colon and rectum. She's a member of the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons Committee on Standards and Programs. Dr. Rafferty, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good. Thanks for joining us. So, Dr. Rafferty, I am going to start with you. Um, we've got a lot to cover today, and we have a lot of great guests, and so I, I want to keep us moving forward. Um, can you give us a brief overview uh, of colorectal cancer? Tell us what it is and, and, and maybe how it might differ from some, differ from some other cancers. So cancer of the colon and rectum is um, something that is an equal opportunity uh, cancer. You know, it affects men and women equally uh, in the United States. It tends to affect people uh, a little more frequently as they age. and uh, We officially call aging after the age of 50. <clears throat> the closer I get to that, <laughs> the younger it sounds. <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest differences, um, or the, one of the most unique things, I think, about colorectal cancer is that it can actually be found before it turns into a cancer. It can be found when it is what we call a polyp. There aren't many cancers in the human body that can be diagnosed and eradicated before they actually degenerate into a cancer, like uh, cancers of the colon or rectum can. So one of our screening and surveillance strategies is to look at people periodically with a colonoscopy or other means to look at the lining of their colon and rectum to see if they've developed polyps. Because if we can remove their polyps, we can prevent the cancer from growing in the vast majority of cases. I had someone ask me recently, and I didn't know the answer, Dr. Rafferty, so I'm glad you're here. Um, someone asked me recently, are all polyps precancerous? And the answer to that is no. Um, okay. Yeah, there are in the, perhaps the most uh, common non-cancerous polyps are called hyperplastic, and they're just sort of an overgrowth of the lining of the colon or rectum, and they're very common, especially in the sigmoid colon. Patients who have something like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease uh, frequently have what we call inflammatory polyps, which are just sort of leftover inflammation from uh, the lining of their colon. So when they do the colonoscopy, are all polyps removed during a colonoscopy or only certain ones which we may be able to identify as precancerous? Well, it depends on the polyp itself. Um, okay. Polyps that are small are usually... Uh, pretty readily removed, but polyps can get quite large, mm. and the larger they are, um, the, the more difficult they are to remove through the colonoscope, um, and, and the flip side of that is the larger they are, the more likely they are to harbor an occult cancer, so it's really mm. important that we get large polyps out, and there are patients who require removal of a piece of their colon simply because there's a polyp that's too large to get out through the colonoscope. 
Got it. Got it. Very helpful. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk more about screening, about what the what the current guidelines are, and 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 what folks need to know about that. So hang on for that conversation. But let me get to Jean. Uh, Jean, you are a colorectal cancer survivor. Can you take us back? Right. Tell us um, when you were first diagnosed uh, uh, with cancer and what that was like for you. Wow, that's pretty interesting to think about that. I got the call during the workday, and my first reaction was I was stunned and I was in disbelief. I called my sister right away, and naively I went in and told my boss. It seemed like all I could hear was fuzzy noise, you know, like nothing Mm. penetrated the noise. My head was buzzing, and the doctor's words kept repeating in my head, the pathology report was positive, you have colon cancer. You see, I had slight anemia, and my primary care doctor wouldn't stop until the source was found. I had a fecal occult test that was negative. Mm-hmm. I had a sigmoidoscopy, but the test couldn't be completed because I hadn't cleaned myself out well enough. Mm-hmm. I started taking iron supplements, but they weren't making a difference. Mm-hmm. The final answer surfaced when I had that colonoscopy, and the GI doc found a nearly obstructing tumor and mm-hmm. told me I'd have to have it removed surgically. And I had no idea of the significance of what he was saying. I was so naive about cancer. No one in our family had been through cancer treatment except my grandfather, who died when I was seven. Mm. I hadn't been close to anyone. So I asked him, how long would I be out of commission for the surgery? Four to six weeks. I figured I could take that amount of interruption in my life. And, you know, this is six years later. Um, even when I was told the statistics, most people with stage 4 colon cancer don't live past two years or two years past diagnosis, it didn't occur to me that this could kill me. I think that helped me maintain a positive attitude, or at least it helped keep me in denial long enough to be able to cope with it all. So you were, you were diagnosed six years ago with stage 4 yes. colon cancer, and, they, and, and the statistics showed that you, you potentially would not live two years. Right. There are, so you're... I, uh, Understand recently there are 6 to 7% of us who are diagnosed at stage 4 who survive longer than 5 years. So you're a miracle, Jean. You're a real, you're a real uh, success story here. Thank you. I like to tell people I like hanging out on the far right end of the bell curve. <laughs> yeah, I like that, that spot. We're happy to hang out there with you. Uh, there you go. So, so, Jean, so you had surgery, and, yep. then, uh, and then did you have radiation, chemotherapy? What, you know, are you in treatment now? Tell us about that treatment path for you. Okay, that's pretty amazing also. I've never had radiation. Radiation isn't typically used for colon cancer, more for rectal cancer, mm-hmm. because in the colon, it doesn't stay still enough mm-hmm. for them to pinpoint it and radiate it. Um, my first treatment was the surgery to resect the sigmoid area of my colon, which is down on the left where it sort of curves, and I met with the oncologist who recommended chemotherapy with Folfox and Avastin. However... Mm-hmm. About a month after my surgery, I had a PET CT scan showing more tumors in various locations in my abdominal area. Mm-hmm. Two and a half months later, I had a second surgery with partial removal of a thing called the omentum, which is like a fatty layer between the skin and the organs. Okay. I had an appendectomy and a complete hysterectomy because I had fast-growing cysts on my ovaries and uh, colon cancer and can easily spread to the ovaries, I understand. Mm. So I began a course of Folfox, which is three different drugs, and uh, did that for six months. My first recurrence was eight months after I completed the chemo, and my oncologist at the time said, no more chemo for you. 
and uh, I sought a second opinion at a regional NCI center. Here we have one of the ones we have is uh, UCSF. Mm-hmm. And the oncologist there said I should be given a course of Fulfiri, which has one different drug than Fulfox. So I changed oncologist then to the one doctor on the tumor board who approved me getting the second opinion. And he's still my doctor today, about four years later. So I wow. had my second course of chemo with Fulfiri, and it's still working. I'm currently in my fifth course of chemo. I've had probably 65 to 70 chemo treatments in the past six years. And I, there are some drugs I haven't tried yet, which is wonderful, because mm. we try to keep that list of unused drugs as long as possible. Yeah. So as long as Fulfiri is still working, the list stays intact. I've had four recurrences, so I'm on my fifth course of chemo. Wow, wow. Dr. Rafferty, obviously an extraordinary experience um, uh, that... that uh, that uh, Jean's been through um, a, a, a bit of a miracle, but certainly uh, she's quite the fighter and, and, and uh, has been through uh, quite a bit. We're, we're getting quickly towards the break here in just a minute or two, but um, uh, Dr. Efferty, obviously stage of disease is really critical here, but what should someone recently diagnosed with col- colorectal cancer uh, expect? Are we usually looking at kind of surgery and chemotherapy? Is that pretty typical? Well, you you hit the old nail on the head when you said it depends on the stage. You know, people with very early stage cancer of the colon and rectum often just need an operation. Um, Stage 2 and stage 3 often involve, uh, for the rectum at least, radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, For colon cancer, uh, just as Jean said, it's it's surgery is the answer. And when it gets to stage 4, it gets a lot more complex, and it does uh, it does include chemotherapy and uh, things like that to hopefully uh, hopefully achieve uh, disease-free survival, but certainly uh, meaningful uh, quality of life. And is it typical um, what, what, what Jean has experienced with a later stage of cancer that you'll be on a treatment for a period of time, time that treatment will fail, will stop working, and then you're moved on to another um, treatment protocol to give that a try? Is that sort of a typical, you know, in terms of that kind of sequence? Well, you know, uh, Jean's story is a bit unusual, and I'm sure she's she's heard that and is and, and knows very well that, you know, people with stage four uh, cancer, um, their their course is there is no typical course really, mm-hmm. and the vast majority of people um, aren't aren't lucky enough to be able to be around to tell their story as Jean has. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that when the recurrences come up, they're often not sensitive to the same chemotherapy agents that the patient mm-hmm. has already received. So she's very fortunate in that the full theory, the agents there are still are still working to keep still working. things at bay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Uh, this is frankly speaking, uh, uh, frankly speaking about cancer. March is colorectal cancer uh, awareness month. We've got a lot um, to cover on the show today. We're going to be talking about screening. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, early diagnosis, early uh, detection, which we know is uh, key. We are going to get to a conversation around what those um, screening guidelines are looking like uh, today and what we need to know about when we should start getting those various screenings for uh, colorectal cancer. We've got uh, some wonderful guests, a wonderful medical expert uh, uh, with us today. We've got uh, Carly Bowman from Fight Colorectal Cancer. She's going to tell us uh, after we get back a little bit more about the work of that wonderful uh, organization and a great partner uh, to the cancer support community. We're going to talk about treatment, and we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, coping with cancer and some of the mechanisms uh, 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 and, and ways that people can cope with cancer. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back.
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, brought to you in part today by Genentech and Celgene. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today I'm joined by caregiver Vanessa Kurtzer, colorectal cancer survivor Jean Angelette, uh, the president of Fight Colorectal Cancer, Carly Bowman, and surgeon Dr. Uh, Janice Rafferty. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So today we are talking about colorectal cancer. Uh, we've heard from Jean, we've heard from Dr. Rafferty about diagnosis, about treatment options. Um, in this in this segment, we w- we want to hear some advice about how you can work most effectively with your healthcare team throughout um, treatment and recovery. Carly uh, Bowman, let me pull you into the conversation. Um, we've just heard from Jean. You know, obviously a lot of emotion. I thought the way she described her experience was so compelling, stunned, uh, disbelief. It just sounded like there was a, a you know a fuzzy noise, um, which we hear from a lot of folks diagnosed uh, uh, with cancer. It can be overwhelming. You don't know what to do. You don't know what questions to ask. Um, we, we, I'm sure, have some listeners today who've just been diagnosed or have a loved one who's just been diagnosed. What are some of the questions, Carly, that someone should ask their medical team when they've been diagnosed with colorectal cancer? Key questions that folks should ask at, at different critical points in time. Yes, there, there are. And I, I want to congratulate Jean on what an amazing story. Actually, she's the poster child for um, the patient advocate um, of someone who is, is uh, insists on the very best and won't stop until she gets it. Um, what we would say is uh, learn all that you can about the disease uh, so that you can take a seat at the table with your treatment plan treatment team, and certainly you can see that with 
Jean with her, um, you know, switching doctors when she didn't, you know, get the answers or didn't didn't want to accept what one doctor was telling her. Um, doctors are very smart, of course, and and they know a lot. But this is your body, and it's your life, and you need to do what um, works best for you. So, um, so we say learn all that you can. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of websites where you can find great information. And what we always recommend is that um, you stick to websites that end with a .org or a .gov or .edu. Um, and those are usually nonprofits, government agencies, or um, academic centers. Okay. And, um, and then we also say whenever you're having a conversation with your doctor, have a friend or a family member take notes and record the doctor's answers. Actually, you can take notes or you can even bring in a tape recorder and record the doctor's answers. And we say this mainly, you know, because of what we heard James say, is that it was like a white noise. Um, it's, there's a lot of emotion, and it's, it's very easy to miss things. And so it's having that backup and having somebody making sure that they're getting all the information for you while you're digesting this is really important. But if someone, so someone's been re, uh, newly diagnosed, um, certainly yeah. they want to find out where their cancer is located. They want to know what the stage of their cancer is. And what does that mean when, they, when a doctor says, well, you're stage one or stage two? Okay, what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Ask those questions. Um, they want to know if they care to their lymph nodes or anywhere else in their body. Um, they're going to want to ask what their chance of recovery is. But what we always say, keep in mind, is that statistics are statistics and people are people. And Jean is a, another great example. I'm propping you up, Jean. You are my post child. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm happy example. to be I'm, I'm sorry? I'm happy to be your poster child. Okay. <laughs> um, of, um, you know, of, of beating the odds. So you want to know what your chance of recovery is, but don't hone in on that detail too, too much because everybody's different. Yeah, probably. Um, I, I find that, you know, sometimes, um, I find sometimes folks really don't know the stage of their disease or don't really know what the goals of therapy are. So I think you're making some good points in terms of folks asking that question. The other question, Carly, that, we, that, that, that we've been um, encouraging folks to ask uh, lately also is, how long do I have to make a treatment decision? Because I know sometimes folks feel very panicked and feel yeah. and feel like they need to make a, a, a treatment decision and sometimes have some regrets perhaps about the decision that they've made. So I know sometimes we also encourage, and I'm sure you guys do also, to say, you know, by what point do I need to make this decision? How, you know, how, so I can right. understand that time frame. Yeah. But we, say, we say breathe, stop, relax, breathe, um, take it all in for a minute because usually nothing needs to be decided right away. Right. Um, and the thing, actually, that I wanted to just throw out there that's really important is that um, um, folks need to start asking about clinical trials um, early on in their treatment. And it's not – clinical trials, I think, has a negative connotation. Um, I like to call them research studies um, because it's, it's – it doesn't mean you've run out of options um, if, you, if you're on a clinical trial. And clinical trial participation rates for adult cancer patients in this country is really low. But the fact of the matter is, is our treatment and uh, the, the, the way people are treated, the medicines that people get today, are because of clinical trials that came before them. Yeah. So it's really important that folks um, know about clinical trials that are available right away and not just something that they put off until what they think is the very end. All, I think all good points, all good points. Vanessa Kurtzer, let me pull you into the conversation here. You come from a different perspective. You're a, you're a caregiver, um, uh, a wife, a mother of two. And it, tell, tell us the story of, of your husband's cancer diagnosis and, 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 and how you defined your role as a, as a caregiver in helping to you know, manage the disease, manage the relationships, manage the communication. 
Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, two words come to mind when um, asked this question because I definitely had to be thrown into being an advocate and really needed to have great organization skills. Um, mm-hmm. I had to advocate for my husband, Lydia, to stop ignoring his, his symptoms and follow through with the doctor. The second part of the advocacy is to the providers. We learn how important the staff is to a successful practice, especially to address the side effects due to chemo, you need a great responsive staff. If yeah. you not get that, then you really need to communicate directly to the physician. I know it, at times I had to become a tiger. Yeah. Um, so I um, definitely um, became very strong-headed and stood up. And I said, I would say many times, if this was your husband, would you want to be treated in this manner? If, yeah. if calls weren't being returned timely and if people weren't, um, just if we weren't treated the way we thought we should be treated, I had to just step up to the plate a little bit. But for the most part, when I would say that, it worked. So another... So forget about the tiger mom. You were the tiger wife, Vanessa. I sure was. <laughs> I was put in a different role there. Another great piece of advice is having staff paged when calls are not returned mm-hmm. and your loved one is feeling the side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a little bit later on but that you just have to page the person and you'll get what you need. Um, unfortunately, I didn't like to do that, but when your loved one is really not doing well, you got to do what you got to do. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. and I thought that was a, a great thing that I learned along the way as well. Yeah, no, some real, some real skill, you know, some real um, um, skills development there. I want to ask Dr. Rafferty, um, Dr. Rafferty, a number of doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals that patients and and, and families uh, deal with. Tell tell us some of the things that a patient can do to ensure open and honest communication, you know, with the with the health healthcare team. How can how can folks get educated, get empowered? You know, I know you're doing the best you can be to be a great doctor. What can patients do to be, you know, great patients and be a real partner in their care? You know, that's a great question. I think thinking of yourself as part of, as a patient, thinking of yourself as part of the team that is looking out for your health is really important. Educating yourself from some of the uh, websites that have already been mentioned that end in edu and .gov and those sorts of things are going to be the most reliable. Come into each of your um, each of your doctors with a list of questions. Um, ask the same questions of different doctors. Make sure that you're getting a consistent story so that you're certain that you're getting the highest quality of care and the care that's right for you. And have another pair of ears and eyes to listen uh, and help you communicate because, uh, just as Vanessa mentioned, oftentimes as a patient and as, as you know, others have mentioned, you're often just stunned and you, you're not quite sure what to say and you lose your train of thought and everything's just, you're in a fog. And so if you have someone there, uh, someone else listening and someone looking at your list of questions and, and making sure that they get answered and making sure that you're taken care of uh, is is such a great thing. So hopefully there's no one out there that has to go through this alone. Hopefully everyone has someone like Vanessa to look out for them and to come with them and listen and learn uh, and ask questions. That's, I think, probably one of the most uh, powerful things you can have on your side. 
It's absolutely true. We all we, we all need a tiger caregiver like Vanessa. <laughs> so uh, so good for you, Vanessa, and good for your family. Um, Jean, we're getting quickly to our our break here. But from your, your perspective as a patient, you know, hindsight twenty twenty, is there something you wish you would have asked your doctor in general or sooner than you did, or or um, uh, you know, kind of in a different sequence? Can you uh, any any tips, things that you learned along the way that you can pass on to our listeners? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the one thing, I'm a question queen as I got dubbed when I worked, but uh, um, one of the things I would have asked is how aggressive that doctor's approach is. I would be much more aggressive if I had it to do over again. Mm-hmm. And I would ask maybe uh, what are the options? The doctor presented to me what he thought I should do, what he recommended for me, and I might have asked, okay, that's what you recommend for me. What are the other options and what are the outcomes if I choose those options? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would want to know about the aggressiveness uh, yeah. of his approach, and if it didn't match mine, I'd find another doctor. Great, great. Um, and, you know, I, I also know for a lot of folks it really is important to get a second opinion, and, um, uh, you know, any, any doctor worth their salt is going to encourage you uh, to do so, for, even if it's for your own peace of mind, even if it's to, you know, affirm the, the treatment protocol that the doctor's recommending. And I think what Carly said is so important. You know, we really do um, encourage everyone to ask, you know, when they're, when they're making that upfront treatment decision, really ask, might there be a clinical trial that's right for me? We know sometimes there's not a trial available to you or available in your community or available for your stage of illness, um, but we do encourage folks to ask that because that sometimes can be uh, the best care possible is through um, a trial. I also want to mention as we go to the break here, uh, at the Cancer Support Community, we've got a, actually a treatment uh, decision counseling program called Open to Options. Um, so if you uh, give us a call at 888 888- Seven nine three nine three five five. Um, we've actually got some trained counselors who can help you think through a decision that you're making, help you weigh the pros and cons, think about your life, your lifestyle, are you working, what are your resources, think through all of those things for yourself. You come up with a question list, we help you come up with that question list to take into the doctor um, to help you make that treatment decision. We always say there's no right treatment, there's a right treatment for you based on your life, your priorities, and your circumstance. And so we've got this wonderful um, open to options program. It's a free um, uh, either in-person or telephone counseling program to help patients uh, through those decisions. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We are talking today about colorectal cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm uh, joined by some wonderful guests talking about uh, uh, their expertise about and experience with colorectal cancer. We've got our our, uh, our, we're calling her our tiger caregiver, Vanessa Kurtzer, uh, uh, colorectal cancer survivor, Jean Angelette. And what was that? What was your nickname, Jean, about questioning? Oh, the question queen. The question queen. Carly, you're going to have to come up with a nickname. I know. Uh, fairly quickly here because we've got some great uh, nicknames going on here. Uh, Carly Bowman is the president of Fight uh, uh, Colorectal Cancer. We've also been joined by Dr. Uh, Janice Rafferty and wonderful uh, medical information. Mark, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, so we are talking about colorectal cancer today. We've covered a lot of ground already, um, and uh, I, I think that certainly all of my guests would agree that the best way to deal with colorectal cancer is to catch it early, uh, either prevent it or, 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 or catch it early. So in this segment, we're going to be talking about screening um, and about early detection. But Carly, before we get into that part of the conversation, tell our listeners a little bit about Fight Colorectal Cancer. Who, who are you? What do you guys do? And how can they get in touch with you? Thank you very much. We are a national advocacy organization based in the Washington, D.C. area. Colorectal cancer uh, supports patients, uh, family members, and caregivers, and we serve as a resource for um, advocates, policymakers, medical professionals, and healthcare providers. And we also do everything we can to increase and improve research at all stages of development for all stages of cancer. What that means is we are often on Capitol Hill lobbying for increased funding for the National Cancer Institute and other uh, government entities that um, do uh, colorectal cancer research. And we also directly fund uh, colorectal cancer research. In fact, our fifth grant will be awarded in a few weeks um, that I'm very excited about. And we're, um, it'll be a multi-year uh, research grant that we're, we're providing to a young researcher who might someday be the, be the one who finds that, that cure that we've, of course, mm. all been working so hard for. Mm. How can folks find you, Carly, and get involved? Well, we're on the web at psychocolorectalcancer.org. Um, we can also be found at, you can also call our answer line at 877-427-2111. We're on Twitter at FightCRC and Facebook at also Facebook on FightCRC. Um, so we're all out there, um, and, and we're um, here to help people in whatever way they need. And if, if we can't help them, then we are happy to send them to the place where they can find the answers that they need. Great. I know Carly has a great team over there, so we encourage you to uh, to reach out, to learn, to get uh, support and get connected. Um, uh, Carly, we know at Fight Colorectal Cancer, you say colorectal cancer can be cured uh, if caught early, treated successfully, even in advanced stages, which Jean is obviously, as we said, our kind of poster child for that story, um, and, and, and most importantly, entirely prevented through screening, through removal of precancerous polyps. Can you talk to our listeners about the importance of screening and early detection? What do our listeners need to know? What are the guidelines? What do they need to do today? Sure. Well, Dr. Rafferty said it, that this is one of the few cancers that can be prevented during the screen, and that is really remarkable when you think about it. Um, and there is a really high survival rate. It's 90% survival rate if, uh, the, if it's caught early. 
And um, so what we uh, what the guidelines say is that if you are um, if you're 50 year if you're 50 years old or older, um, that's when regular screening should begin. If you're at, if you're of average risk. And I'll talk, talk about that in a minute. Um, but if, it's important that folks know that it doesn't matter what your age is. If you're exhibiting symptoms, you need to talk to your doctor and make sure that he or she rules out colorectal cancer. And Jeannie, once again, is a perfect example. Um, her doctor did the right thing. She had anemia. And um, I'm sorry, I don't remember if it was a, a male or female doctor, but he or she um, kept looking for the source, for the cause of the anemia wouldn't stop. And, uh, so those are the sorts of things that you need to be doing if you are, um, if you're exhibiting symptoms. And, and it's, and it's, it's important that, um, that you fight for, uh, a colonoscopy to rule out colorectal cancer if you're exhibiting symptoms, um, and you're under the age of 50. Cause some, you know, there are doctors who just don't know. So the American Cancer Society, and the um, U.S. Task Force for colorectal, or I'm sorry, the U.S. Task Force for Colorectal Cancer um, recommends that um, uh, colonoscopy. Once um, screening begins at 50, a colonoscopy is completed every 10 years, unless there's a reason for you to do it more frequently, um, like they found polyps, or obviously if you were diagnosed with cancer, um, it, or if you're getting a. It, 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 there's different methods of getting screened. So if you're getting the colonoscopy, it's every 10 years. If you're getting what is called the virtual colonoscopy or the computer tomographic colonography, that's every five years. Um, a flexible sigmoidoscopy is every five years. Um, and then there's the, the FOBT, the FIT. Um, those are done um, generally at home, um, and you want to do those yearly. Um, so, and then there's, of course, emerging technology, which is very exciting. We, um, uh, there's, there are folks that are working on a blood test um, that if, um, if it, you know, it, it, what they want to do is, uh, is discover a blood test that can not only discover cancer, but also discover polyps. Obviously, the goal is to find the polyp before it becomes cancer. That's always the goal. Um, and then if that's moving beyond that, then you want to find the cancer as early as possible. So, Carly, in an otherwise healthy person, no symptoms, first colonoscopy at 50. Is that right? That's correct. No symptoms or um, of ad- average risk, and there are risk factors that would um, cause you to want to start getting earlier. So let's talk about that for a minute while we're on the okay. subject. Um, well, uh, so there, if you have a first-degree relative who had colorectal cancer or um, polyps at a younger age, um, that would um, increase your risk. If you have Lynch syndrome or something called familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP if you prefer, mm-hmm. um, you need to be getting, um, although if you know that you have one of those two um, conditions, you know you need to be getting screened um, earlier. Um, if you have um, inflammatory bowel disease like colitis or Crohn's disease, you're at a higher risk. Um, and then there's the... I, you know, the sort of the, where it gets a little fuzzy for people where they could kind of maybe write it off that they're not necessarily at risk because they have diets and high red meat, low in fruits and vegetables, and low vitamin D levels. Um, these are obviously, these are important things that you want to talk to your doctor about. There's also um, more and more science pointing um, a correlation between type 2 diabetes and colorectal cancer. 
and also um, your ethnicity. African Americans and Eastern European Jews are at higher risk for colorectal cancer and should have a conversation with their doctor about um, when they should start screening. So great information, Carly. I'm assuming all this information is on your website as well because I know we have, we're, we have a, lot, a lot of information that we're taking in. So fightcolorectalcancer.org, you can find out about all of these screening guidelines, which I think is critical. Um, Jean, I know you've been very active in helping to um, enlighten people about the advantages of, of, of screening. Um, what would you like to tell our listeners today on this subject? Well, when, I, when I've talked to people, <clears throat> it seems that they're very afraid of a colonoscopy. Don't be mm-hmm. afraid of it. The prep isn't pleasant, but if I had to choose, I'd much rather do a night of prep for a colonoscopy than spend my life getting cancer treatment. So you weigh yeah. the risks. Be aware of the symptoms. Rectal bleeding is an obvious one, but pay attention to your body. Has your digestive system changed? Have your stools changed in any way? Color, consistency, or diameter? Diameter is a big one, you know, because it gives you an idea of what's going on in your colon if things are being compressed or shrunk or whatever. Find out if anyone in your family has had cancer, like Carly was saying, or other health problems that could genetically impact you. Often, people have an intuition or an idea that something's wrong with their body, and they have a hard time getting the docs to pay attention, especially when they're younger. I've heard stories from 30- and 40-year-olds whose doctors won't listen to them with some of these symptoms. If you tell them you have rectal bleeding, it might put you on a fast track to a colonoscopy if you want one, if you need one. And much of what I'm doing now, since I'm no longer working, is being active with other colorectal cancer patients and, and supporting them through their survival journey. Yes. So I'm using what I've learned to share with others and hopefully make their path a little smoother. But people just really shouldn't be afraid of the colonoscopy and the diagnostic tests. Yeah, it's, it's so critical. Vanessa, we're getting towards our break here, but has you, you know, the, the cancer experience within your family, your, your husband's diagnosis, has this prompted greater conversation with family and friends about this topic of screening? Absolutely. Um, especially what Jean said, a lot of people focus on, well, I'm not 50, so the guidelines say I need to get a colonoscopy 50 or older. My husband was uh, about just shy of turning 40, and we wow. had no family history. I mean, it just totally was out of the blue for us. Um, so how was he diagnosed, Vanessa? Was he symptomatic or what, what was happening? He was definitely um, symptomatic, um, but he was ignoring them and mm-hmm. was not saying exactly what Jean said. I am having uh, bleeding. I'm losing weight. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I'm eating is not agreeing with me. Um, Every, the signs were out there, but I don't think also that he was being very proactive when he was going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, when you delay, um, makes the process a little bit um, tougher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think this is uh, this is critical information for 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 people to know. And I, you, you know, I know a lot of folks don't want to talk about below the belt. Um, um, but, Gene, I think what you said is so powerful. You'd rather deal with, you know, with, a, with, with 24 hours of colonoscopy prep and deal with a, what is a very short um, procedure rather than dealing with, a, you know, with a, with a life of cancer, um, which can be so challenging uh, at many, many levels. Um, Carly, can you tell 
folks, again, the website, uh, your website, where they can find information about these different screenings and, and, and recommendations. I know, Carly, it's so hard these days. Every time you turn on the news, there's another change in in recommendations and guidelines for different cancer uh, screenings, and I, I want to make sure folks can rely on, on, you know, you guys for the latest information about that. Thank you. Yeah, it's fightcolorectalcancer.org. And I would definitely say that back you up on, you know, their new, a new study that comes out. And a lot of times it's, it's a new study that seems interesting. It's got a very fancy, sexy headline. Um, you know, ginger was the biggest thing a few months ago, that ginger could prevent cancer. Um, no. It was one study that maybe it could. And, and so we actually have um, a woman who writes uh, regular updates for our website, and she likes to debunk these sexy studies that come out and you know, really sort of that you see on the, on the news constantly for day day or two and she likes to, you know, write a write a blog that says, Nope, here's the science behind it. It's it's not all it's cracked up to be. The most mm-hmm. impressive for me was the one that said that it was the blog that debunked the chocolate uh, prevent colorectal cancer. That was depressing. Oh darn. <laughs> oh know. darn. But I it know. helps it helps improve depression, right? Doesn't it help with elevating your <laughs> it mood? Does, I think it does. So yeah. maybe it has a counter you know kind of a counterbalance effect. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly speaking about cancer, uh, we are going to take a very quick break. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with our final segment. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, brought to you in part today by Millennium and Amgen Oncology. I'm Kim Tebel. We've been having a great conversation today about uh, colorectal cancer with our wonderful guest, Vanessa 
uh, Kurtzer, Jean Angelette, uh, with the Dr. Janice Rafferty and uh, our buddy Carly Bowman. Um, we were talking just before the break um, about screening, about early detection. Um, Carly, let me ask you quickly, um, um, do we know, we were talking about kind of myths and, 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 and misconceptions and all these new studies coming out. Do we know, is there evidence around a link between diet, exercise, and colorectal cancer? Is there, is there some data on that, any guidance on that matter? Um, there is. I mean, there is. There are definitely strong indications um, about diet, exercise, um, and and like I mentioned earlier, type two diabetes and its correlation to colorectal cancer. Um, and um, so it, it is important, actually. For it's it, it's not something that our doctors are telling us just to you know be nudges. It's really, you want to have a diet that is balanced. You don't want a diet that is high in red meat. Now, high in red meat means basically red every day of the week. Um, mm-hmm. if, you have, if you have a steak now and then, that's not a diet high in red meat. Okay. So you definitely want to have lots of fruits and vegetables and grains and fiber in your diet as well. You want to get physical activity. Um, we know that there's very strong ties between diet exercise and um, and recurrence of colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is very, very important for folks to just be as healthy as they can. Further, even then, the, the folks I know who have done the best with their treatment were the ones who were basically fit before they were diagnosed with cancer. So, of course, being fit and, you know, eating healthy and mm-hmm. all that won't prevent, won't uh, you know, protect you altogether from getting cancer, but you also do better after surgery and after treatment um, if you're physically stronger. So mm-hmm. it's just a, you know, it's just being ready for battle in a new minute. You definitely want to um, try to be as healthy as you can on any given that day makes for sense. any reason. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Uh, Carly, I want to just go for a, a couple minutes before we get to the close of the show and talk about the importance of of social and emotional support uh, through the cancer experience. Um, uh, in your experience and observation, how important is it for a patient to receive emotional and social support through treatment, beyond treatment, survivorship, recurrence? Um, uh, you know, what's the impact there? Yeah, well, it's not even my opinion. I mean, re- research has shown that there are benefits to um, uh, having uh, psychosocial support um, as a method of coping with cancer. Um, and we know that doctors are doing better at treating the whole patient, not just the tumor. And I think organizations like yours um, and the, the, your new institute that is actually looking into these ties is so important um, for us to really start to quantify the, the, the um, links between um, emotional health and, um, and, and how people can deal with their cancer diagnosis. So we know that it's there. So you find you need to find your support, and it's whether in person support group, um, something that's online, something that's over the phone. If if it's just returning to your passion of painting, or um, uh, you know anything, a gardening, anything that brings yeah. you peace yeah. and happiness, you need to have that. This is a this is a battle for your life, and you have to have um, a safe place where you can go to regroup and, and yeah. get ready for the next challenge. 
Yeah, you know, uh, Vanessa, I certainly know a large part of being a caregiver is providing that emotional support, psychological support through some tough times. And, you know, you you have young children through all of this um, as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you supported your husband, how you talked to your kids about the fact that your husband had cancer, and how you supported yourself and, and, and as a caregiver? It's so critical that the caregiver gets some care as well through this process. Absolutely. Um, I supported my husband as best as I could emotionally by being at every appointment and writing notes down. You try to do the best you can, and I definitely am much more of a talker than he is, if you can tell. So I I communicated often with family and kept them updated. Um, But one of the main things I did was I stayed positive throughout the journey, Um, tried really hard not to go to the negative um, negative energy was really a big thing that I did not want in my home. And I was his biggest cheerleader. There were days that were very tough um, with not having any family in town and two young yeah. girls, eight and ten. Um, but giving up was really never an option. And our girls, um, they they knew what was going on. We communicated with them as soon as we knew exactly what um, was happening to their dad, we try to be as open as possible, of course not getting too much into the details, but we wanted our girls to be able to express their feelings and to come to us any time of the day. We said to them, come 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, come on in. Um, And another great thing from the cancer support community here in Cincinnati um, is a program called Walking the Dinosaur. Mm I thought that program was phenomenal. Um, We did four Wednesdays in a month, and the kids were grouped with other children that are faced with loved ones going through cancer, and they're able to get their feelings out and not feel like they're the only ones that are going um, through this journey as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's just some great information, and I... I, um, you know, we do know that sometimes, you know, children who have someone with cancer in the family are a little bit of a lost population, uh, you know, out there um, in terms of finding uh, support, finding resources. We do at our affiliates around the country. We've got some wonderful programs uh, to help kids who have someone with cancer in the family deal with that and, and, and some uh, creative ways to express themselves um, uh, uh, through that experience. Jean, we've only got a minute or two until we, uh, we're, we're here at the end of the show, um, but can you tell our, our audience any advice that you have for someone who's just been diagnosed um, uh, with, with colorectal cancer? What would you tell them based on your experience? Well, within two months of my diagnosis, I had already visited the local cancer support community and joined a weekly support group. The face-to-face support is invaluable. Over six years later, I'm still in the same group, and I'm best friends with some of the people I met when I first started. So that support is is so critical, so, so critical. I've also worked uh, on myself to shift my perspective when the one I'm using doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Can I tell it? Is there time for me to tell a quick story? Uh, very, very quick. <laughs> okay, I came home from the hospital in 2010 with an IV line in my arm because I was taken off solid food and put on uh, IV nutrition. I came home. I was trained to disconnect and connect it myself, but I came home and I cried so much. I stopped and I looked at what, why I was crying and what was causing it, and I realized that I hadn't set up my space properly to deal with this new routine, so I contacted a friend who came and helped me to set it up. And life improved a lot. So 
So I use my frustration and my tears to pinpoint what the problem is, and that helps me keep going. Good for you. Mostly it's connecting, connecting with other survivors. Nobody understands like another survivor or another caregiver, and uh, I think that that's very, very critical. Well said, well said. Um, I want to thank all of you for being on the show today. It's really been a pleasure having you. We'd also like to dedicate uh, the show today to Eugene and you, Vanessa, for uh, for being a you know a star a star patient, for being the question queen, for being the, the tiger caregiver. You're both. <laughs> to us uh, for all that you've done, and we are so grateful that you um, chose to share your stories with us today. Um, Also want to thank you, Carly, for all that you do at Fight Colorectal Cancer. We encourage folks to visit that website, fightcolorectalcancer.org. Our two organizations have been wonderful partners for many, many years and refer back and forth to one another. So check out the great work uh, that they are doing. Um, If you or someone you know has been diagnosed with cancer, uh, you do not have to face cancer alone. Come check us out at cancersupportcommunity.org. As I said, we have 57 affiliates across the country, beautiful sites where you can uh, find support groups, education, nutrition, uh, stress reduction, all free for people with colorectal cancer and all cancers uh, and for their family members, caregivers, and loved ones, www.cancersupportcommunity.org. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thanks for listening today. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.